You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkinson. Hello again, Life Group Leaders, and welcome to the Life Group Leader Podcast for Brentwood Baptist Church, and we're excited to be with you again today. I'm here with my man, Paul Wilkinson. Hey, group leaders. And he is so excited for this particular chapter in the book of Acts. And that's where we're going to be today. We'll, we'll get to that here in just a second. Uh, just really just one announcement that I wanted to kind of remind you once again. And we made this announcement last Sunday, uh, or I'm sorry, last, last podcast episode, but it's just a reminder for you around the new curriculum that's going to be out on August the 13th, Sunday, August 13th. And it's on spiritual leadership. And we're excited about it. We think it's going to be a, a great uh, le- series of lessons for, for life groups. Uh, again, it will be preached from the from the pulpits on all of our campuses that day. So uh, be, be looking for that. But again, that's going to be beginning August the 13th will be the first lesson in that series. We plan to have the books handed out to life group participants two weeks before that date. So that will be July the 30th. We'll have the books in your classrooms for you. If you're an off-campus group leader, you can swing by the uh, Discipleship Center in the atrium to get the ones that you need. Or you can email Paul Wilkinson or me, and we will do our best to get those books to you. So July 30th will be the curriculum. August 13th is when it starts. July 30th, I'm sorry, putting them in your rooms. August 13th is when it starts. Any any word, Paul, on that you can think of? No, that sounds right. All right. Well, how about we jump straight into the lesson today? Uh, today, we're going to be talking about lesson number nine in our Living Scent curriculum. And uh, the title of the lesson uh, this week is The Impact, The Impact of a Scent Church. And the focal passage or the background passage for the lesson comes from Acts 19, and it's the account of Paul and his disciples coming into Ephesus and the ministry and the activities that took place there, eventful to say the least, and it's a great opportunity for us to unpack uh, this, this chapter this week. The focal passage, though, that is recommended in the lesson comes from um, verses 8 through 10, when Paul is entering the synagogue and he's he's teaching there, arguing for the gospel, and he receives some opposition. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But um, but it's going to be a, a great chapter, and I think that it could be some really good points to be made in your lesson this week. So as we begin, we look at, beginning in verse 1, we see that in 19 that, um, that Paul enters into Ephesus, and found some disciples who were already there. And upon probing a little bit, Paul realized that these were, that these folks or these men that he came across were disciples of John the Baptist. And, uh, and he gets into a conversation with these men about, uh, baptism and the baptism of repentance. Um, Paul the Wilkinson. Talk to us a little bit as we move forward about uh, um, some of the, the occasion here and, and some of the, the, the highlights that you see as a result, I mean, uh, from this conversation. Yeah, I think this is a convicting word for teachers, and it certainly was for me after my time here. 
Uh, when I came in, just taught a lot of focus studies to begin with in, in Brentwood Baptist on Brentwood campus. And it was all doctrines. I mean, that's my discipline, I guess, philosophical theology. So just teaching doctrines of God, incarnation, omnipotence, on and on it goes. And then I would just jump immediately to application. Here's your God. Go do it. God's omnipresent. So don't be scared. God's always with you. Be bold in your presentation of the gospel. And I think I was creating uh, John the Baptist disciples because I did not talk to my uh, membership about who the Holy Spirit was and the necessity of the Holy Spirit for the Christian life. Uh, the Spirit being the one who convicts, who empowers, who gives words to say to the disciples, the one who prays on our behalf, and on and on it goes. I did not introduce them to that aspect of the Trinity in any significant way. But then yet I asked them to do the very things that the Holy Spirit empowers them to do. And so that was a convicting word to me to say that we can't put our people in bondage by releasing them to do something that um, that they don't have the power to do. We need to introduce them to the Spirit as we are also um, exegeting the text, talking about God and unpacking theology for them in order that they can call upon that power to do the work that they're called to do. So we want to make Christ's disciples, knowing the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of the kingdom, um, not merely John's disciples who say, I never even knew there was the Holy Spirit. But, you know, these these men that he came across, obviously, um, you know, were Jewish, probably Jewish proselytes. They were disciples of John the Baptist. They were looking forward to the coming king. Uh, that is of Jesus Christ, but they did not have the Holy Spirit. They um, they weren't resting on the finished redemption of Christ, perhaps. And so Paul was brought there um, by the Spirit of God and uh, was able to help them become more illumined to the truth. Yeah, so they were preaching a generic repentance or a repentance that would come later provided by God instead of understanding that it had already happened. Right. And so we, on this side of the resurrection understand um, that the Father's raising of the Son is testimony to the validity of the Son's message and the Son's sacrifice, and that we can trust that we have been given the Holy Spirit to do this great work of kingdom expansion and God-glorifying worship in our lives. So we have to introduce our people to the works of the Spirit um, and to the power of the Spirit. And so we see after uh, Paul laid hands on them and prayed for them that they received the Holy Spirit and um, they began to speak in tongues and prophesied. And um, and so these men now were, were, were true disciples of Jesus and not merely disciples of John. And so then we move into verse 8 here, and this is kind of our focal passage. And I feel like we probably could just read it. It's only three verses here, so let's. I want to do that. I'm actually reading from the NIV. Don't tell anybody. Hmm. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I hope that's okay. Uh, verse 8 uh, in chapter 19, it says that Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing per- persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul, talk to us a little bit about some of the highlights there from those three verses that uh, that, that you see. 
that may be worth mentioning and talking about in lessons this week? I think one of the key features, and it's one of the things I desperately struggle with, is the discernment about uh, to whom we're called. I think, I don't know if it's a cultural thing or, or what, but this idea of no man left behind, get everybody, I think has permeated my life when it comes to all aspects of ministry, where the assumption is every individual that's out there is an individual who is going to respond to the gospel if you spend appropriate time with them and so forth. And I think Paul demonstrates to us here in Jesus, I mean, Jason brings this up a few chapters ago, is that Jesus would have these towns breaking out in revival and he would just say, all right, let's pick up and go to the next town yeah, in the midst of here. great revival. And Paul does something similar. He's teaching here and they don't respond. So he says, all right, I'm out of here. Um, and he does it earlier with the teaching in the synagogues and he's rejected by the Jews in the synagogue. And he says, all right, well, I'm off to see the Gentiles then mm-hmm. and to give them the kingdom. So there are what a disciple maker named Mike Breen would call persons of peace. And the language that fits with this living scent material would be welcoming. There are people that when we try to welcome them into our lives will reject us. And we need to, we need to say that's okay for this season. Mm-hmm. But there are others when we welcome them into our lives who will welcome us back into their life. Those are the people to whom we're called to disciple in this season. And we need to inv- invest in them appropriately, invite those people along and uh, do service and fellowship and Bible study and on and on with those individuals. And then in time, God's playing the big game. We have a sovereign God who's after all souls and We'll circle back around for the others, or the Lord will be sending other disciple makers. So we need to be looking for those people who welcome us into their into their lives as much as we would love them in ours. Well, I think that's a really good point to make this week in your in your lesson uh, is to talk about that that aspect to talk about person of peace, um, because there are people again that that may accept you or may accept them, right? Um, even though, even knowing that they are a believer, and um, sometimes a, a lost person might be repulsed by someone like that, and make you know, and just not even want to have a relationship with a Christian or whatever else, especially if they have a different worldview of things or political views or things like that, and so therefore they just kind of dismiss them. But there, there are those that won't, will not dismiss, even though they don't believe, you know, uh, in, in the same things necessarily um, from a Christian perspective they still may want to have a relationship and be friends. And so those people are the ones that you may want to spend more time with and invest in a little more. It doesn't mean that the people that dismiss us, that we don't need to pray for them and love them anyway through it. Uh, but but it's those people that you don't really try to invest a lot of time in because you assume that maybe the Holy Spirit is not working in that person's heart right now. Maybe with the people that are accepting you in their life, you would make the assumption that maybe the Holy Spirit is doing something in them. And I can come alongside in the same way that these John the Baptist disciples were, were didn't truly have the truth. Um, you also could 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 be that um, that enlightener, so to speak, as you begin to invest and pray and bless them, serve them. Yeah, and a secondary feature I see in this text is that Paul taught for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them for three months, and then later in this chapter. We're going to see where Paul hangs out for two years doing this work of ministry and proclaiming of the kingdom that he's doing. I have a tendency to want to play the short game, sort of burst energy evangelism. Let's uh, 
maybe it's the evangelistic movements of the early mid 1900s where you want to get a bunch of people saved in a moment and then let's go get more people saved let's go get more people saved and that doesn't seem to be the mentality of the early church explicitly yes we want the outcome of salvation of souls but there seems to be a more of a marathon approach uh, where you spend three months two years discipling someone living the life before someone proclaiming the message before someone establishing someone in the disciplines of the faith and so forth so i I think understanding that we have a sovereign god with infinite time who's not in a major rush can liberate us to um, not put the anxiety into every single moment so that we can approach people in a way that we anticipate being with them for a period of time now of course the negative of that is to say well you know i have time to share the gospel later i have time to share the gospel later So I want to be explicit that Paul is proclaiming the kingdom in the entirety of these three months and then later the two years. So I'm not saying, hey, just go hang out with people for four years, assuming in year 10 you can get around to an explicit gospel. But what I am saying is that we ought not get discouraged or even expect conversion immediately. Uh, What we ought to expect is that we are going to build this relationship for these people that have welcomed us into their lives, constantly proclaiming the kingdom, constantly serving and constantly living a kingdom life before them for the sake of their souls, ultimately. That's right. It's it's the long game. I think that's what you said. Right. And it's, right. it's persevering, and it's the endurance of, of the relationship of um, sticking with it and, and not giving up, um, but knowing that, you know, the Holy Spirit's timing is what's most important, and His work in the lives of those people working through you as a uh, as a tool, as a vessel, uh, is so key. And so, you know, I know that, you know, some of you are praying for uh, a family member. Some of you are maybe have a wayward son or daughter who doesn't know Christ or a grandchild or a spouse or someone in their, in their, in your group, um, is the same way. There is, uh, comfort knowing that God blesses those who are faithful and, um, not to say that they're, that they're going to be saved. No one can promise that, but I think that um, persevering and understanding that, um, that sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes a lot of investment in many years for someone to come to faith and, um, and not to give up is, is so key. So it's not a instantaneous gratification when it comes to this sort of, this sort of work. Uh, when we're dealing with people, uh, it takes a long time sometimes. And so just a reminder of that. And I think one of the things that really uh, comforts me even begins in verse 11 uh, on down. You know, the focal passages today was was 8, 9, and 10, but but I think the entire chapter is just uh, so rich with so much truth and so much so many things to remember. Verse 11, it, it, it goes right on to say, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Luke, in writing this book of Acts, and here in this chapter, is reminding the reader that it was God doing the work through Paul. Paul would be the first to tell you, it's not me. You know, I know that God has called me as an apostle. God has gifted me. God has equipped me. But yet, it is God's power working through me that is accomplishing the work that he wants to accomplish. And there's another reminder, right, Paul the Wilkinson, that 
that it's God's power. It's God's work doing it. It should take a lot of pressure off of us, off of off of other followers of Christ who desire to live sin where God has them. I think it's one of the major hang-ups of our membership in this body. Uh, and I would just say evangelicalism altogether when I think about some of my own family and friends that uh, I've had conversation with is understanding a theology of missions, what's my role? Uh, so that we, so for instance, the two biggest responses I get when I ask people here in this place why they don't evangelize, it's uh, what if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Or secondly, what if I don't articulate the gospel well, uh, such that I destroy someone's faith or turn them off from the faith forever? And I think verse 11 can answer both of those questions. That is God doing the work through you, that we have a sovereign Lord who is not going to put anyone's eternal salvation solely upon our shoulders uh, so that we can tell our membership it's okay not to know answers. It's actually refreshing and authentic to say, I don't know. Even after eight years of seminary and a PhD in philosophy, I say I don't know a lot. And what I hear back from both students and just strangers and people I'm trying to disciple and evangelize, is they say it's refreshing to say you don't know. Now I go find answers, or at least I go get some semblance of an answer, but it's authentic and genuine, and it's, um, I don't know, declawing, that may, may be a better word than saying declawing, but it, it just eases tensions to say, I don't, I don't have all the answers, but here's where I can show you Christ has shown up in my life. That's a powerful witness for people. And then secondarily, we have to trust in a God who is sovereign enough, powerful enough, and uh, loves his creatures enough to want to save their souls. Ezekiel, Peter, Timothy all say God desires all men to be saved, such that if we were to butcher a gospel presentation on the street with somebody, just completely blow it, where they're just like, I hate God. If that's who that is, that's that's your God, I don't want any part of it. We have to believe in a God that's sovereign enough to have a Mike Glenn around the next corner uh, to catch him and fix whatever we did. And I think if we believe in a God like that, then we can be a little bolder. We cannot worry about screwing up so much and trust that God's playing a long game and is going to redeem people in spite of our foibles. Um, it just it allows for a trust and a confidence, I think, that can liberate us to actually do the work of evangelism. You don't have to have all the answers, and you don't have to say it perfectly. That's right. Yeah. So he continues and starts talking about these miracles of handkerchiefs and aprons that touched them, right? And um, so, you know, Paul, what happens if they get a, if, if one of our leaders gets a question about what, how come we don't see that today? Or, you know, what, what's the deal with that? And, and, you know, that was prominent obviously back in the early church, but, but now, you know, in, in our 21st century Western culture, that's not something necessarily that, that we see at all. Um, and, and if we do see it, we're extremely skeptical, but yet we see it here in scripture. Yeah, it's frustrating in some ways. I think people long for uh, this kind, these kinds of signs and wonders and power. Uh, theologians and biblical scholars come down on different ends of the spectrum, as usual, on these. Some are what's called cessationists, and they say, look, these gifts were given at an incredible time in history, post-resurrection of Jesus, when this message that was given only to the Jews was now supposed to go out to Samaritans and Greeks. They needed some extraordinary evidence that they were preaching truth as they took this Israelite so-called promise to the nations. And that uh, testimony were these miraculous gifts. Uh, others are half or partial cessationists that say, well, some of them, maybe like the faith healings and the tongues, those were for a season. 
But now it's, you know, we have other gifts, ministry, administration, so forth, what have you. And then others are like, no, all these are still active today if you have the a proper amount of faith. Um, I think I come down probably somewhere and I try to come down in the middle of that spectrum. I hear stories from missionaries in the Southern Hemisphere, underground China and so forth that say healings are just a normal part of everyday life. Uh, I don't want to doubt the veracity of those men and what those people are experiencing. What I do know is that it doesn't seem to be readily present in this way in Western civilization, um, that, that we don't generally lay down hands upon people and get healing. And that's okay. The Lord has provided other means for healing, namely doctors, medicine, and, and so forth. So the Lord's still healing people. It's just not quite in the extreme way or the, or maybe not the extraordinary way we think of here. Um, and I also think about those texts in the Bible where like Timothy apparently had stomach aches and Paul tells Timothy, take a sip of wine to settle your stomach. He doesn't tell him to pray hard to settle your stomach or here I left this kerchief with you. Just grab this whenever your stomach hurts. And, and, and I would recommend and you'll feel better. In the twenty first century, you may just want to try some grape juice. That's right, maybe grape juice. <laughs> <laughs> Notice I did say sip. I did say sip. <laughs> And so, um, there are even people in the Bible of great faith who, who were left with some ailment and so forth. So I think my perspective on it in the end is that God sends miraculous gifts to places where it'll get people converted. God's goal for us in this temporary life, and this is a grounding assumption for my theology and my life, is not to make us happy in this moment, and is not to make us healthy in this moment, is to get people saved. The bliss and the health, and the eternal communion and security, uh, in that sense, in the physical sense, come in glorification, in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, God wants people saved. And if he needs to make somebody sick and go to a hospital bed so he can witness to a doctor or a, or a nurse or whomever, or the guy or gal in the, in the bed on the other side of the curtain to get them saved, then I think God is right and good and just to do it. And I think we get in line with it. So I think in modern times, we ought to think of these kind of extraordinary things as vehicles for the validity and the testimony of the truth of our gospel in order for the salvation of souls. And if it'll get people saved, God's going God's gonna to do it. So with all that said, I think the reason we don't see them now is because no one would care. I don't think more people in Europe and America would get saved because of this. Uh, I think people in South America, Africa's um, underground church in China are getting saved because of it, and they're accessing it. I think here it would be irrelevant, and, and that's why we don't see it. I think if it gets people saved, God would be doing it. Hmm. But it's, it's a tough question. Um, you're going to have people that are on both sides of this fence. As usual, we want to provide some latitude for your belief. I mean, one of the Southern Baptist distinctives is we're not terribly dogmatic about things outside of crucifixion, resurrection, Christ's return, and so forth, God creating. So provide latitude for your people. Maybe just paint the spectrum for them. Um, you can admit where you are if you want, but just say, look, uh, the point of what we're trying to get after today is that we can have an authentic witness to people, whether we have, you know, Kleenexes that can heal them or not. Because we have the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us so that we become the mediators in the presence of Christ for people. And so try not to chase the rabbit of the miraculous gifts too much. I point out that they are maybe, or at least there's testimony of them being valid 
in other places. Uh, you can make a commentary on the West and our hardness and coldness of faith here. But either way, we always want to drive back to the fact that regardless of whether you have miraculous healings, you do have the literal third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And that you can give people for sure, even if you can't. That's right. The miracle truly may not be the handkerchief or the apron that's touched right. by someone, but it could be just the miracle that is taking place in your own heart that you can share with those who uh, who don't who are far from Christ and, and speak to your own transformation. That that is amazing. that that is so fruitful and um you know and is extraordinary to to share and you'd be you know shocked at the response perhaps um as you go to share your testimony and story yeah so one last thing that i like in this text that you were mentioning uh earlier is the contrast between the seven jewish priests versus john's disciples where john disciples were preaching repentance doing their work these priests are trying to call upon the name of the Jesus right. and the and we're, way we're, of Paul. <laughs> and what Paul's talking about is beginning in verse 13 when these um, these seven priests are invoking the name of Jesus and attempting to uh, drive out demons in the name of Jesus, even saying, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And then we see... Uh, that one day they were trying to do this, and the evil spirits responded to them and say, "Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but I don't. Who are who in the world are you?" And then they, <laughs> the evil spirits, jumped on the men and and beat them to a bloody pulp. It's yeah. pre- pretty terrifying. It's an incredible scene. Yeah, I can just imagine. So, yeah, Paul, let's talk about the contrast between. Well, first of all, yeah, let's talk about the contrast between these 12 John's disciples that we read about in the very beginning of the chapter 19 and the difference response there, and then also these priests who uh, are some Jews that were trying to invoke Jesus and um, and then got beat up by these evil spirits. Uh, I think the biggest thing is that uh, John's disciples were ready to receive the Spirit. They were longing for Messiah They wanted to rest in Messiah and become a part of the kingdom of Messiah. When I look at these seven sons, uh, these seven possibly priests, like um, they don't seem to want that as much. They seem to want to tap in to some magical power that will let them drive out demons. They don't seem, the text doesn't indicate that they have a kingdom mindset or purpose in this. It's more like they just happen to look over and see Paul, wow, it's working when he does it. Let's you know, let's tap into this Jesus guy so we can drive out demons as well, as opposed to a hey we're desperate for Messiah because we know we need a savior, and, which is what John's disciples would have been. Mm. Yeah, so there, so these priests were trying to manufacture these uh, th- these miracles and tapped into a to a to a dark force that they didn't expect and uh, and got beaten up. So it shows the, in, the authenticity or the inauthenticity of the of the seven sons of Sceva and the chief priest versus uh, the power and the authority that Paul had as an apostle. Uh, he was validated. These these evil spirits knew about Paul. They had heard of Jesus, and they knew about Paul, but they didn't know these people. And um, so they were trying to borrow someone else's, uh, someone else's faith, uh, faith, I guess. Yeah, and it's just an incredible application question for your groups is to say, if there was an evil demon wandering into this room, what would he or she see in us? Would they recognize us as disciples? And what can we point to in our life that's fruit 
that we care about expanding the kingdom, that we're giving authentic worship to God. How would a spirit recognize you? It's just a bizarre question that I ask myself sometimes because of because of this text. Well, there's more we can probably talk about. What, what, any any last minute uh, yeah, I wanna, thoughts? Yeah, I want I want to add one more thing um, because right after that they burn all of their magic arts and books. Not those seven, but the other people in the town who have come to faith. There's a radical submission and a casting away of the old life. And I don't know how much fifty thousand pieces of silver is, but it sounds like a lot. Uh, and that's how much of the value of the books they burned. And then the rest of the chapter is Paul starting riots because he's calling people out of their life. So you used to make carve idols. Well, don't do that anymore because those idols are leading people to uh, condemnation, not to salvation. And so he starts this riot because this guy is losing business over this new gospel of this singular, this monotheistic God that Paul's teaching about. And it reminded me of when Russell Moore was here with the Onward stuff that uh, part of our responsibility as the people of God is not merely to proclaim this message, get them saved, and then leave them. And this one thing that living sense really driving us toward is to invite them into your life and live with them. As we call people out of wayward lifestyles and wayward even jobs uh, to come to the saving grace of Christ, are we willing to count the cost and help them find a new way? So if you need, if we call someone into faith and say you need to give up your idol making. Uh, for the sake of the gospel, are we willing then to support them until they find a new non-idol-making career? Are we willing to walk with them and help them find training or whatever they need to live this new life in Christ and be their own witness? And I think it's, uh, it's, it's sort of a sinking of the ethics of onward with um, theology and discipleship of living scent is that we as the body of Christ have the power in the spirit and the grace of God to live open-handed and to walk with people as they reject their old way of life and walk into this new one such that we can trust God's working together all things for good, Romans 8. So we have to count that cost. It's not an easy thing. Get out of your life. Get out of everything you've ever known. For some people, reject your family because they're going to reject you for leaving your faith to come to this faith. Are we willing to count the cost and be their family? If we call the Jew out or the Muslim out and they come to faith, are we willing to take them in for at least a season and say, I'll be your family to get you on your feet? That's part of what the body of Christ means. That's right. We have to prepare our people for it. And Mike Glenn, when he, if you were to ask Mike Glenn, I think what the first word that comes to his mind when he thinks about small groups, the word that he would say would be family. Mm -hmm. And he's used that metaphor many times in sermons as he's talked about the importance of biblical community, his family. And um, and so to try to create that sort of environment and atmosphere in your groups is so so crucial. Uh, a, a family uh, that you know uh, is full of grace and truth, and um, and is seeking to edify and build up those in the group. Uh, it's so it's so crucial. And so um, anyway, good good discussion today, Paul. Yeah, I think a great win for your groups would be to give them a proper theology and missions. And like chapter nine, Jason Dukes does in the, in the book of the living sin book, paint this vision for what God wants to do through his people of all the people in Asia hearing. What would that look like in Nashville? What does that look like for you if you're called to Cambodia or Nepal? Continue to paint that picture for people while helping them understand their role in it. Yeah. And just a reminder that in verse 11, like just, just like we mentioned a minute ago, it's God's doing the extraordinary. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. God does extraordinary miracles through his people. Uh, Paul Wilkinson and I met with someone today or this week that got connected to a church that I thought was a really interesting name. It was called Conduit Church. Hmm. 
Yeah. And uh, that was, I was like, wow, I like that, you know, uh, that we are, we are called to be a conduit through which God's power flows into right. the lives of others. So, um, amen. Let's remember that. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, and we hope you have a great, great uh, lesson time uh, this Sunday. Thanks.